The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. On today's episode, I was joined by Dr. Jill Weatherhead, an infectious disease specialist from the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. We discussed MLB's plan to return and play games in Arizona, and if it's possible or even safe for fans to return to the ballpark anytime soon. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this amazing conversation with Dr. Jill Weatherhead. Welcome to Astros Baseball, a podcast by a fan. For the fans of the Houston Astros, here is your host, Rob Fontenot. Hey guys, welcome to this episode of Astros Baseball. My special guest today is Dr. Jill Weatherhead. She is a specialist in infectious diseases from the Baylor College of Medicine. Uh, Dr. Jill, welcome to the show. I appreciate you doing this. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here and excited to speak with you and the other baseball fans out there. So you got your MD from Michigan State, but you're in Houston now, right? That's correct. So I, I grew up in Michigan, uh, came down to Houston for my medical training, and never left. All right. So you, you've uh, enjoyed some Astro games in your time in Houston? I have. Uh, I'm a, a Michigan transplant. So originally, as we talked about before, a Detroit Tigers fan, but convert to a Houston Astros fan now. All right. So you are a specialist in infectious diseases. Um, so what does that all cover? What, what does it mean to be a specialist? So what that means is after my original medical training, I went to through extra training to focus only on infections. And so typically in normal years, what that means is when people either go to their doctor or they go into the hospital with pneumonia or a skin infection or, you know, a a sinus infection, those are the types of patients we'll see. And um, that can be caused by all sorts of different infectious diseases. And this year it's, it's a little bit different. So now we're seeing this new respiratory virus. And so we, as infectious disease specialists, are getting information about this virus to help understand how the virus is transmitted and what it means for the public. So the origins of the virus, I've heard it was from someone eating a bat or that it was created in a lab in China. Do we actually know where this came from and how it got started? So that's a great question, and there's still a lot of information we don't know yet. What is known is the virus that's currently infecting people, that SARS-CoV-2, which it's been named, is very similar to it, the virus, uh, a SARS virus that came from a bat. So the theory currently 
importantly is that this virus started from a bat. So other animals have coronaviruses as well. So this would be a bat coronavirus that jumped species, um, likely into what's called an intermediate animal. So some other sort of animal that humans then became in contact with. Uh, what that intermediate animal probably is, we don't know quite yet, but there are people looking into what that could have been. So it likely jumped from a bat to another animal, from that animal into humans. And then from there, humans were able to pass it between each other, which is why it blew up um, so rapidly this winter and spring. So with all this going on, you must be pretty busy. Yeah, there's, there's a lot to do. There's a lot to learn. Um, and then there's uh, my colleagues working in the hospitals currently taking care of the patients. So it's been a, a teamwork effort to both understand the virus, um, educate others about the virus, and then take care of patients with the virus too. So um, the infectious disease specialists around the country and around the world have been pretty busy these last couple of weeks. All right, so I brought you on the podcast so that I could talk to you about baseball. Uh, MLB has a plan. And uh, the first time I read it, I, I thought it was Florida and Arizona. But th the last thing I've read is that they want to start playing baseball in either late May or early June. And everyone is going to be in Arizona. And they're going to quarantine everybody. They're going to just basically go from the hotels to the ballparks. And they're, you know, they're just going to be the team all by themselves. So the first question I have about this is the, they said before everybody goes into this atmosphere, they're, they're calling it a biodome, but they go into this atmosphere. They have to, uh, I guess be quarantined or something for like two weeks. Do you know what the two week period is? So the two week uh, period that people say is because you can be, asymptomatic from the virus, um, but still have the virus uh, in, in your system. And so two weeks is the time period that people are given from the time you're infected to the time that you be showing symptoms. So that's where, where that two weeks comes from. They were also talking about if a player has a death in the family, or a birth in the family and they leave, uh, you know, for the funeral or the birth that they have to go through that two week period again. Right. Yeah. So, so the first part Rob, is that we all, we're all having a hard time with this, right? So we're all struggling without our normal lives. We're struggling because people are losing their jobs or struggling um, because life isn't normal. And, and one thing that brings many of us joy is to watch sports, to be engaged with sports. And that certainly bringing those back as soon as it's safe to will, will certainly help the morale um, within the country. The, the question is, when is it safe to do that? And at what price to pay to make that become a reality? And I think that's what the, the MLB is trying to work around to, one, give something to the fans, give something to the players to get people back to normal.
penalty, but that really needs to be considered um, in the context of what's best for public health. So um, there, if, they, if they do move forward with this, there, there does have to be very stringent regulation, but whether that's appropriate or not, I think it's pretty early to make those decisions. They were talking about uh, that they would have to test everybody. And that would include the players, the coaches, the bus drivers, the trainers, security, all these different people. They would have to be tested on a weekly basis. Um, and, and to me, that would be quite a bit of supplies, like a lot of testing supplies. Would that, is there enough supplies to do that? Or will that have an effect on the public's supplies? Will there be enough for the general public left over? That's exactly right. These um, these measures of testing people repeatedly for what are considered at this point non-essential activities can only be done if the supply is in excess. So if we have enough supplies to test the general public to do the public health infrastructure that we need, which is testing people who are ill, testing their contacts, or what's called contact tracing, to make sure the people that the sick person comes into contact with can also be tested and quarantined if possible, and, and extending that out. As long, if we have that capacity, which we don't currently have, then it would, and we have excess supplies, then that might be appropriate. But until we are able to build up our infrastructure, um, we can't be taking supplies away from the general public uh, to do these measures. So your opinion right now is there's probably not enough testing supplies for this to happen? Right, exactly. So, And that might be different in a month. That might be different in two months. But at the current time, we, we don't have enough tests to test people who are ill, let alone um, be testing people who just need to be tested um, each week. So it, it just really needs to change focus to what can we do for the best of our the general public to make sure people who need to go to work um, can be safe to go to work eventually. Uh, when can we start opening up businesses? Uh, when can we start going out into public that we have? When can we start doing sports again that we have an infrastructure in place that can monitor cases that can monitor contact of cases to prevent resurgence of this virus because you know the, the worst thing I can see besides more and more death is that we get a second resurgence and have to go back into these stay-at-home orders which I think would be pretty painful for people so the infrastructure of our health public health um, status really needs to be in place that we have the capacity to do testing both in the public as well as for the athletes to keep everybody safe uh, has to be a priority. So the, the price we would pay to try to have sports is kind of too big at this moment, too big of a, an effect on the general public. Right. And that's, that's talking from today. You know, what we've learned about this virus is that the situation changes almost at an hourly pace, right? So, what might be true today may not be true by the end of May, but at the current standpoint, we need to make sure that the general public is has the capacity to be tested, has the capacity to be taken care of, 
in our hospital systems before we can have these uh, activities to, to return to normal. Uh, and that has to be a priority. So if the players are tested weekly, and and this is my if everyone's tested and everyone is quarantined in the hotels and the games, why do they need to still practice social distancing while they're in the stadium? And why do they need to keep being tested every week if everybody's quarantined? Right. So if nobody ever leaves, there's nothing that comes in or out of the facility. That means food. That means reporters. That means, you know, buses in between facilities that could be contaminated. If, if they live within the stadium, nobody ever leaves, and it's a closed environment, then, then they probably wouldn't be. But that is probably also not very realistic, that there wouldn't be any in and out of the facility. Right, because they'll be going back and forth from the hotel, and people will be delivering food and all that. So, okay, that makes sense. Exactly. So when when do you think, or what's the what's the uh, story on when there will be a vaccine available? I've heard a year to a year and a half. Oh yeah. So to give you some historical perspective, it it takes years to make vaccines. So um, it's you know it's it's very very stringent process. It's a very labor intensive process. And if you think about it, we, we just learned about this virus less than four months ago. And to have the capacity to start making vaccines is, is really incredible uh, testament to where science has come over the last couple years and decades, that you can take something that we've never seen before and start moving it into uh, creating a vaccine. And why vaccines are so difficult to make is because you have to train the person's immune response in the correct way that provides protection for that person, but doesn't cause uh, additional harm to the person. So because you're interacting with the immune response, you don't want the immune response to kind of go crazy and cause other problems. You want the immune response to specifically respond only to that infection when when it comes into contact with it. And because of that, it takes a lot of time and scrutiny to make sure that the response is correct. And that's why vaccines are so um, are so regulated and that there's so much that goes into development of vaccines. So saying a vaccine should be developed in 18 months is an incredible scientific feat. I mean, it's, it really is amazing that even a projection, projection of 18 months could be possible. And so... I know we all want these vaccines as, as soon as possible so that we can get some protection, but um, it also we also have to maintain a very high scientific standard. We don't want to lower that um, even though we want to get these out as soon as possible because we don't want we want it to provide the most protection um, and not cause any other problems. I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Dr. Jill Weatherhead. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. So the vaccine for COVID-19 would be similar to like getting a flu shot yearly. Is it something that people would have to continue getting? That, that's another great question that we don't know the 
And I think this is one of the issues with trying to predict what's going to happen in the next couple of months. So what we don't know currently is when you get infected with this virus, your immune system creates these proteins called antibodies. And the antibodies, in many cases, will protect you from getting that virus again. What we don't know with coronavirus, so what we do know with this coronavirus is that people do make antibodies. What we don't know is if those antibodies are strong enough to prevent you from getting the infection again. If they are strong enough from from protect, for protecting you against getting the virus again, we don't know for how long those antibodies stay. So the question is, if you were to get a vaccine, Will we need it in another year because that protection goes down steadily over the course of the year? Or will it be a one-time dose and you're good? That part we don't know yet either, and that has to be tested um, in the lab, and then it has to be tested in what are called clinical trials where the vaccine is put in to or given to people and watched to see how the immune system responds and for how long. I read a story... I think it was yesterday that uh, MLB employees, they're having a 10,000 person study where they do a finger prick and the blood is tested for the presence of antibodies. And that's what you were just talking about, which shows past infections. And so I was going to ask you if you, if you get it, can you get it again if you've already had it, but you've already answered that. But the other, huh? I said, we just don't, we just don't know yet. We don't know if that will be enough to prevent you from getting the infection again. And we don't know if it is for how long it will protect you. So this 10,000 person study should get us some pretty good information. Absolutely. Any these big studies that look at the antibody response and then we'll then look at if people are getting reinfected and if, and how long they have the antibody response will be very helpful. But also in the lab, um, they're also testing to see how strong these antibodies are to the virus and if it can kill and contain the virus, and that will be helpful as well. Okay, two questions. Are, are there, do you know if there are any people that are just naturally immune to this and also, is it possible that you could have it and be spreading it to other people but not know it? Right. So we don't know if there are, for example, genetic modifiers, um, underlying reasons that certain people are more susceptible to others for getting the virus. So there are certainly people who are getting the virus and people who, who may or may not be getting the virus. So we don't know the underlying reasons for that yet. Um, we do know there are certain groups of people who, once they get it, are more at risk of severe disease. In terms of having the virus and not knowing that, yes, there are um, studies suggesting that you can have the virus, you could be shedding the virus, and not have any symptoms. And the, with the, that knowledge, that's when the, the CDC came out with the recommendations for people to wear masks when they're out in public. That's where that came from. So um, the idea of wearing a mask out in public is that if you were infected, but you have no symptoms, a mask 
may be able to contain some of the particles uh, from your respiratory tract uh, from spreading to other people. So um, that is definitely a, a possibility, but of course needs further investigation as well. How far do you think we are from uh, being able to come up with a, uh, a prescription or a medicine, however you want to call it, to give to a patient? Um, I, I think that will come before the vaccine comes. Um, there are a lot of clinical trials uh, comparing different uh, antiviral treatments and the, the outcomes of those studies, which hopefully we'll have in the next couple of weeks, um, some indications of these drugs will be incredibly helpful and provide some confidence to um, public health uh, policymakers in terms of when we can get back to a, a more normal uh, climate. So there is a large international study that's looking at uh, three to four different antiviral medicines at the same time. There are uh, trials here in the United States and Canada that are looking at medications that may prevent you from getting the virus. So that's if you come into contact with somebody who has the virus before you get sick, potentially taking a medicine to prevent you from getting sick. Um, those studies are being done, and that would be similar to flu. So in, in flu, there's a medicine called Tamiflu that you can take if you're sick and have symptoms, but also if you come into contact with someone who has the flu, you could take the Tamiflu to prevent you from getting the actual infection. So that would also be a strategy that would be helpful, and those studies are being done. So there is a lot from a therapeutic standpoint, both from the vaccine development, which is in hyperdrive, uh, as well as from evaluation of antiviral treatments that are being done that hopefully will have some answers from at least preliminary in the next couple weeks. So do you think if there's no vaccine, but there is a pill to take, do you think that... Uh, MLB could get back to normal with fans, or would we still have to wait for a vaccine? Um, I, well, there's going to be a lot of factors that come into play in terms of reintroducing fans. Because people are in such close contact and the uh, efficiency of this virus, so how well it transmits between people is so great that it, it's going to take a lot of other indicators to have fans back into the stadium. So yes, the vaccine will be incredibly helpful, um, but also the understanding, more understanding about this virus. So like we've talked about before, if people have had it before, are they immune? And if they're immune for how long? If mm -hmm. we have that information, that's very helpful. Um, also, we need to know if this virus is going to be seasonal. So will it go down towards the summer months and then pick back up in the fall? Uh, that we see decreasing cases this summer, but then come, you know, September, October, we see it ramping up again. We don't know that yet either, um, and that will be incredibly helpful information. The other part is we need to make sure that there's um, decreased community transmission. So we have to be at a state where the transmission within a community has gone way down to nearly negligible before it would be safe to introduce people back in. And on top of that, as we've talked about before, we need to be able to have the capacity from a public health infrastructure standpoint 
that if people were to develop symptoms, they can be tested and then contact tracing or finding people they've come into contact with can also be tested. And we're not, we're not near that point yet. And so that's where it will take weeks to months to figure out that information uh, and then make predictions in, in terms of when fans could be reintroduced into, into stadiums. So it seems like besides having medicine for it and a vaccine, just gathering the knowledge of this virus is just as important. So I had a question from uh, one of my listeners, Mark Yu. He said, presuming the rate of new cases and deaths is significantly reduced, but there's no vaccine available, do you envision a return to normal? I, I don't envision a, a return to normal for quite some time. I think there, there will be gradual steps towards normalcy. But um, I think this is going to be a new normal for us. So um, meaning we need to be consciously aware of our, of our risks and consciously aware of what our capacity is to um, test and treat individuals. Um, without those capacities, we're going to see a re resurgence, or we could see a resurgence, I should say. Uh, and so in terms of bringing sports back, um, we just need a lot more, more knowledge to be able to say when that would be in order for it to be safe, not only for the fans, but for, for the athletes too. I mean, mm -hmm. we need to be considering their health uh, as well as the fans that are there. So it's just um, very difficult to predict when that will be, but that there has to be standards that we reach before we put people's lives at risk and those standards have to be that we have the capacity to test treat and do contact tracing that we have the capacity in our hospital systems to take care of people if they get become ill that we're not going over our limit in the hospital um, and then we we need these therapeutics and vaccines to make sure that we can prevent spread within the community um, and as much as i i want sports back des desperately yeah uh, it's really putting the public health perspective first um, to make sure everybody is safe and, and mainly to prevent death, but also to prevent this resurgence from coming back and having to go back into these stay at home and quarantine orders. I had another question from Grady. He was asking what will the new normal look like in one year? or 10 years in baseball and society? And I guess you kind of answered that already, is that we really don't know. Right. It, it depends a lot on if, if we have vaccines and treatments. It depends a lot on if people have immunity to the infection and that if it's seasonal. So, you know, we have seen other viruses like SARS-1, the SARS that the coronavirus that came out in um, 2003, that just went away. Um, and that went away in 2004 after there were very strict uh, public health measures that were put into play in areas where this was a, um, being effective. Um, it's unlikely that SARS-2 will act the same way just because of its ability and efficacy to transmit between people. But we just don't know yet. And we just don't know if it will act like the, our normal endemic coronaviruses where we see it every year. So for example, 
when you get a cold, about 30% of those colds are caused by normal coronaviruses. And so if you think about when you get colds, most people get them in the winter, and then there's a couple, uh, there's some transition in the summer, and then it ramps back up in the winter again. Mm -hmm. So we don't know if this coronavirus will act like those uh, regular coronaviruses where it will kind of have lower transmission in the summer and then ramp back up in the fall and winter. Uh, and so those types of pieces of information will dictate what this new normal will look like. And I, I really like the, the comment by the, the person asking the question that it certainly will be a new normal and not a return to what we previously knew as normal. Okay, so I have one more question for you. Uh, they've talked about baseball if you if you compare them to basketball and football, that it's the safest sport to bring back because of less contact. What are your thoughts about that? And also, how dangerous would it be for football players and basketball and those higher contact sports to try to resume back up? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So when you look at individual sports, something like golf or tennis, where there's one person or at least separated by great distance, it, it will probably be a little bit more straightforward um, to be able to implement restrictions and um, put those into play earlier on and compared to bigger contact team sports. Uh, baseball kind of in this middle ground where it's a team sport, but there's quite a bit of space in between players. But when you think about it, there's still quite a bit of contact when players are in the dugouts or um, even before and after the game. So there is still quite a bit of close contact in that area, not necessarily while they're playing, um, but certainly, you know, in between innings and before right. and after games like that. So that closeness is still going to be a problem. Um, and that obviously translates to football, basketball, where there's also physical contact during the game as well as close contact on the benches or on the sidelines. So I think it'll still be an issue with baseball uh, in terms of everyone's still in close contact and there's multiple people in comparison to, you know, single uh, individual sports. Okay. So, so going back to the plan for them to start baseball back up again in late May or early June, if there is enough testing equipment, do you think this is a good idea? Um, you know, I think, one, you're, you're right. There needs to be enough testing. Whether that will be feasible is going to be the question. But there, there just needs to be a lot of thought put into this, um, both from a, a psychological standpoint for the players and athletes, as well as organization of how you're going to prevent people from coming in and out of a closed system. Um, and that's going to be really challenging. And unless that's airtight, it's going to be very difficult to put that into place. The other issue that I see with it is if somebody contracts it, they're going to have to stop for two weeks again. And how do they, how do they make schedules and how do they try to, you know, have a normal league if they're going to have to stop if anyone gets sick? Right, exactly. And, and if that person does get sick, they put everybody else at risk within that closed community as well. So so you don't think it's a good idea to do it? 
at, at this point, we don't have the information to say that this is going to be successful. Um, and it's likely premature to be putting these, um, these uh, measures in place. Uh, this might change rapidly, but at this moment, we don't have the infrastructure to ensure that everybody's going to be safe. And until we can ensure everybody's going to be safe, um, these thoughts can be discussed. And I, and I appreciate um, the, the thought process behind it to try and get things moving, to try and get people back into sports because it is so important for many of our psyches to have that mm-hmm. uh, available. But, it, but we really need to take a step back, take things slowly, and really see what measures need to be done to make the uh, comeback of sports be done in a safe manner that doesn't put people's uh, lives at risk and doesn't put a strain on the public health infrastructure. And so, yes, I think it's appropriate to be thinking and planning uh, to try and get sports back, but we just don't have that information yet. Well, Doctor, uh, that's all I have for now. I really do appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. It was a lot of fun. I I do appreciate it a lot, and I hope everyone out there enjoyed the uh, conversation, and hopefully you gained some knowledge on uh, the COVID-19 virus and whether or not we're going to have baseball again. Thanks again, Doctor. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Astros Baseball. Make sure to subscribe so that way you will be alerted when there is a new episode. Follow Rob on Twitter at Rob Fontenot. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.